by stimulating intellectual conversation? Are you turned on by the idea of engaging with thought leaders from across the United States? Do you go gaga over exploring important ideas from influential books, research, and essays? Then welcome to Curiosity Porn, the place you can satisfy all those intellectual urges guilt-free. Your hosts are Dr. Guy Crane, Professor of Philosophy at Rose State College, and Professor James Davenport, Professor of Political Science at Rose State College. However, the views expressed here are solely the views of the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of Rose State College, its administration, faculty, or students. And now, here are James and Guy. Good afternoon, Dr. Crane. Hello, the future Dr. Davenport. <laughs> Are you still tinkering away at that? Uh, I nail am still hammering away. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks for hitting that sore spot. I appreciate it. How's your How's your day been? Uh, pretty good. Uh, a little busy. Lots of errands, and um, that's all right. I this is always a highlight. So yeah, this is good stuff, right? I'm a little uh, I'm mixed today. In meteorology terms, I'm partly cloudy. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, uh, on, on the cloudy side, uh, I haven't been to the gym in like three weeks, so I'm feeling really sluggish. Feeling, I, yeah, you know, I understand that. I think I'm having some brain fog as a result, too. Uh, I'm very excited about our guest yeah. that we're going to bring on here in just a second. Uh, but I almost fumbled that away. Uh, by sending information to the wrong email address. Uh, and so fortunately, um, he was gracious enough to accommodate some of that. And so without much further ado, we have uh, Dr. Michael Munger from Duke University. He heads up the uh, philosophy, politics, and economics uh, program at Duke University. Is that correct? Did I say that correctly? All right. Uh, I have followed uh, Dr. Munger for a, a few years now, uh, not in like a cyber stalky way, but I'm just saying uh, his work. I've read some of his books and uh, has seen some of his presentations on YouTube and such. And uh, when we were thinking about guests, I was like, we got to have we got to have him on. So, yeah, James pitched you to me and uh, he said, listen, guy, you're the you're the podcast fiend. Why don't you go look up some podcasts that uh, Dr. Munger's been in and I do a search and I already have like a backlog of 50 things I need to listen to. <laughs> Turns out you're on econ talk about every other other day or so, right? I, I'm, I'm afraid I am guilty of podcast promiscuity. <laughs> well, right and, up our alley. <laughs> and, and you, you now you have your own podcast. Uh, uh, the answer is transaction costs, correct? Yes. And we're going to be talking about transaction costs. Absolutely. The answer is transaction costs. So I would hope you're going to talk about it. Whatever the question is, that's the answer. All right. Right. All right. We got some uh, really quick uh, kind of get to know you questions. So uh, we're going to start off with those. Guy, what you got? Uh, how did you get into academia? I wanted to go to the University of Florida and smoke dope with my friends. It was the 1970s and it was what one did. But my parents saw through that very wise scheme and sent me to a monastery called Davidson College. <laughs> now, people know about Davidson College because of Stephen Curry. But at, at the time, there's mandatory ROTC, uh, mandatory chapel. And not mandatory, but highly encouraged education in liberal arts. And it changed my life. There was a professor there, Charles Ratliff, 
who uh, taught economics, and it had never, my father didn't graduate from high school. It had never occurred to me that getting a PhD, much less teaching at a college, was a career. But I thought this is what I really would like to try to do. I applied to a lot of graduate schools and didn't get into any of them. And I applied to one more, uh, Washington University in St. Louis, and was fortunate enough to go there. And again, a life-changing experience. I went to study macroeconomics, but quickly realized that was not what really interested me. But uh, Barry Weingast, who later became the chair of government at Stanford, and Douglas North, who won Nobel Prize economics in 1993, were both there. And although it was no part of any kind of plan, it turned out that studying with them gave me a lifetime's worth of work and I'm still trying to develop that. And the, my interest in transaction costs specifically dates to Douglas North. So I guess the two biggest influences were Charles Ratliff at the undergraduate level, who showed me what was possible, and Douglas North, who showed me what the life of a scholar who works hard for a long time on basically the same set of questions could accomplish. So uh, this is a question I have. Um, do you consider yourself a political scientist? an economist, or both? I've never understood the distinction, which probably shows why I've had a hard time getting jobs because people will ask, what are you? And um, I really admire Adam Smith. What was he? Very, uh, uh, well, I most people classify him as an economist, but he was really a moral philosopher, the right? The term at the time, right, was political Church. economy. They would work on that. But, Church. But he, but he also did. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I just, um, I, and I appreciate that because I bounce back and forth between, you know, uh, I'm very interdisciplinary. Uh, I'm not as strong a mathematician to really claim to be a good economist. I am better at understanding principles, but, uh, uh, uh but I like, I like to dabble in a little bit of philosophy. You do. Get my feet weak, wet a little bit there. That's and, true. uh, but I am a political, I love political science. So uh, probably my first love, but you know, hey. All right. Why don't you tell us uh, what you might be currently reading, listening to, watching, your choice? I'm blessed, I guess, to be teaching a class in campaigns and elections. And this, unfortunately, is an extremely interesting election year. It's always interesting to do it during a presidential race. But the students have been interested in the sort of constitutional bases of the Electoral College, the 14th Amendment uh, challenges to Trump's eligibility. And so I've been reading books about the founding, rereading the original documents of the founding, uh, students and I arguing about it. Um, I just in the last couple of weeks have been teaching Patrick Deneen's very interesting book, The Failure of Liberalism. And the liberalism was, Deneen claims, and I think he's right, that in the United States, liberalism is almost like water to the fish. And that's a tired metaphor, but we don't question the basic idea of liberalism. So there's left liberals, we call progressives, and there's right liberals, classical liberals, or in the U.S., conservatives, but they share the basic beliefs in liberalism. And there's a lot of young people that are raising questions about that, that I think uh, we, need, we need to take those questions seriously. It's not obvious, to them at least, that liberalism is the best way to organize a society. And if that's true, if these institutions lose legitimacy, 
the next few years could be pretty rocky. Uh, I, I've already got a follow-up question, it. and it's Go not even it. on our list. It's but, fine. Uh, all right. So the fact that they're asking those questions, they're showing up in your classes, my classes, guys' classes, asking, you know, challenging kind of the, the presumptions of liberalism. Is that a function of the fact that we don't really teach them why any of that, how that emerged? Do we do a bad job of explaining that? Uh, because your 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 discussion of, well, it's just, it's all around us. Everybody believes this. And we don't ever take them through. Here's how we got here and why uh, we're where we're at. Uh, and so they get there and they start, what college is about is, challenging ideas and, and, and exploring things. And, but nobody's ever kind of walked them through. It's my same argument as how, you know, we never teach anybody anything about economics and, uh, but we teach them all sorts of criticisms of it without ever teaching them, you know, markets and how markets function or things. Am I on the right track there? Or am I off a little bit? I don't disagree with any of that. We've done a really bad job, partly because in my view, Schools of education select for people who don't feel like they have much of a stake in the existing system. And so a lot of them have heterodox political views, some of them on the right, some on the left. I'm not trying to make an ideological point, but whereas once teachers of high school civics felt that it was their mission to inculcate the values of liberalism, now we teach colonialism. We teach that the framers of the Constitution were all racist slave owners, and that capitalism is a means of exploiting the weak. And perhaps unsurprisingly, if that's what young people are taught, they feel no attachment to the institutions that actually form the basis of American society. Okay. All right. Is there something about your work that you wish people understood better? A lot of my work is in a part of political science called public choice. And the simple summary of public choice is that rules matter more than they should. Now, that doesn't make much sense when you first hear it because, well, it seems like rules should matter a lot. The point of public choice is that if you ask a group of people what it is they want to do, they can't answer that question until you tell them how we're going to decide. There's some sort of voting mechanism. Different voting mechanisms matter a whole lot. So for people who attach moral significance to the outcome of elections or majority rule, the fact that the rules matter more than they should is a big challenge. So my perspective on majoritarian institutions is that it provides voters with a means of removing candidates from office that they think are doing a bad job. It is a mistake to attach moral significance to the outcome, though, saying, well, that's what the majority said. And this used to be a more difficult case for me to make, but recently the left has actually come around to this position, although in a kind of narrow way, with the Dobbs decision. Because I would ask my students what would happen if Roe versus Wade were overruled. And the answer is democracy would break out. All that happened was that democracy would break out. There was a limitation on the ability of majorities to decide whether abortion would be legal and under what circumstances. And that was Roe versus Wade. That limitation was removed, but the Supreme Court didn't say abortion is illegal. All they said is that now majorities get to decide. Rules matter more than they should. And so I, I, I think people are confused about equating democracy with majority rule. Majority rule 
can be just tyranny. There's no reason to expect rectitude from the multitude. What democracy is, is a balance between allowing majorities to have their will, but protecting individual rights against illegitimate uses of majoritarian power. And that balance is always in contest. If majorities become too powerful, all of the institutions that we care about that protect individual rights to property, to speech, to conscience, all of those things will be swept away. And I think the the constant drumbeat of emphasis on majority, majority, majority misunderstands what democracy is. So what I wish people understood is that democracy does not equal majorities. Interesting. Interesting. All right. And this may just follow up on that, but uh, what's one belief that you have that puts you at odds with your peers, colleagues, or family members? Well, um, I run for office every even-numbered year, including this year, as a libertarian. And so the North Carolina has a libertarian party. Uh, it is a well-developed North libertarian party, partly because in 2008, I ran for governor and got more than the 2%. I actually got 2.8%. People ask me, why did you run? The answer is that I was trying to get more than 2%. And there's actually a watchword there. If you define your goals really low, you can be a success in life. (laughs) (laughs) A a life lesson for the students right there, I think. Yeah. If you can define victory at 2%, it's it's manageable. But to be seriously, I, I managed to do that. And so I I think a lot of people look at me as a kind of unicorn, because on the one hand, we have conversations, we go to lunch. On the other hand, I'm a libertarian, and we all know that those are crazy people. And so I get into a lot of conversations, but mostly now it's with people that trust me enough to say, we'd just like to know why you believe this. What what are your beliefs on this question? And I end up having a lot of interesting conversations about that. I had a conversation a few months ago with a, a colleague from another institution. We were at a, a dinner together uh, with with some friends, and one of my other friends mentioned something to about me being a libertarian. And this other colleague was like, "You're a libertarian? I didn't know that. Well, what do you think about seatbelt laws? You know, as though you know that's the test. I guess is as you're you're, you're a true libertarian." And, in that case, they've advanced because usually it's just drugs. When I was running for governor, what would you do about drugs? And they weren't even paying attention. So I would say, I want to make one thing clear. Under a Munger administration, heroin use would not be mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. We want to talk about a couple of books that you've written. Uh, we're going to start with the one is the first one that I read of yours. And I was the title just the title is uh, Can Capitalism Survive, I believe. And when I first read that, I was like, well, of course it can. But I was reading as I got into the book, I was like, OK, now I understand some of the questions he's really trying to answer here. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you first is uh, how should we define capitalism uh, and then why should we be careful about having idealized versions of either capitalism or socialism? Well, that's a really long question, and I will try to be brief with all of the attendant warnings that brevity will make the answer unsatisfactory. So with with that proviso, there's three concentric circles, and the big outer circle is exchange. One of the things that we know is if exchange is voluntary, 
it makes both parties better off. And the public policy implication is obvious. We should try to allow people as many opportunities for voluntary exchange as possible, because I don't know what people need. No central planner could possibly know what people need. But individuals in local communities who know each other, they can find ways to help each other. And then that means that exchange is the foundation of everything in terms of making it possible for people to serve each other. And we all become better off, even with the same amount of stuff. Stuff is in the wrong place. But if we exchange it, that means that it moves towards higher valued uses, not because anyone planned it, not because anyone commanded it, but because individuals acting in their own self-interest will engage in trading activity that makes each individual better off, which means the community is better off. The second smaller concentric circle is markets. Markets are a set of institutions for reducing the transaction cost of impersonal exchange. I don't have to know you. I don't have to rely on the fact that I go to the same butcher every week. I can just go into a Walmart and buy something from someone I will never meet again. And I can rely on the fact that the thing in the box is what I expect it to be. I don't have to open it up and inspect it. And the person I'll never see again accepts a plastic card in payment. So this means that the transactions cost, which are an important part of the cost, the total cost of something is the inconvenience of acquiring it. It's the sum of the money cost plus inconvenience. If, we, if markets reduce inconvenience, they expand the set of exchanges. Markets start to elaborate the source of all prosperity, which is division of labor. Adam Smith described in the very first book, of wealth of nations, how division of labor and specialization increase the amount of stuff that we have. So exchange moves the stuff we already have towards higher valued uses. Markets expand the stuff that we have through division of labor. The third and smallest concentric circle is capitalism. Capitalism is an additional step beyond markets where the single, argue, single word that I would say favors capitalism is liquidity. Liquidity is as yet unformed resources that can be formed by entrepreneurial creativity into a way of making new things. And that means that if I sell those things and make a profit, then all of the contracts, the voluntary contracts that I incur with input suppliers, all of which made them better off. I wrote a bunch of contracts with labor, suppliers of energy, suppliers of buildings, suppliers of steel, plastic. All of those contracts were voluntary. They're all better off. I combined those things because I have enough liquidity to build capital machines. And then I sell it in output markets also voluntarily to consumers. And each of those consumers is better off. Now, I've made all those input suppliers better off. I've made all those consumers better off. If I have something left over, that's a special kind of price in economics, which we call profit. It's the excess of revenues over costs. It is a signal to the society that we need to engage in more of that activity. So the argument for capitalism is the ability to direct liquid capital towards new profit opportunities, because that's the way that we expand the welfare of the society. Now, my question was, the book is, is capitalism sustainable? My claim is it's not sustainable in a democracy, because if a corporate CEO is seeking profits, there is a legal but immoral way of expanding my profits. And that's not to have contracts with input suppliers. It's not to have contracts with consumers. It's to go to the government and to seek favorable regulation and uh, pay, uh, tax reductions, just special tax reductions just for me, and subsidies. 
That is money taken from taxpayers at gunpoint and given to me. Subsidies are way better than having to sell in an output market. In an output market, I have to persuade citizens you should buy this. But if I can just go to my congressman and hire a lobbyist instead of an engineer or customer service people, I can divert taxpayer money to my corporate treasury. And that's called cronyism. So my claim in the book is there is a really strong tendency towards cronyism in capitalism in a democracy. So the real question is, is capitalism sustainable in a democracy? And the short answer is no. So in that context, is it worth defending capitalism? Is capitalism worth defending knowing that in a, within a democratic regime, it's going to ultimately uh, devolve into some form of cronyism? I have proposed a number of places what I call the ugly pig test. So here in North Carolina, we have a uh, state fair and there are livestock shows and some contests. Usually they're about the cuteness or attractiveness of some animals. Uh, adult pigs are not actually very pretty and so we don't have those. Maybe we have something about a contest for the weight of pigs, but I wanna propose a pretty pig contest. And the thing is, there's actually really only two pigs that we can consider. One is socialism, and socialism tends to become authoritarianism, as we've seen in Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea. So when people talk about their ideal of socialism, it tends to become an authoritarian regime, and there's no way out of it. Those are really repressive and poor regimes. They strive for equality, but the equality they have is that everybody's poor, not that everybody's rich. There's another ugly pig, and it's capitalism. Capitalism tends towards cronyism, but those are the only two pigs available. What happens is people go to the contest, capitalism comes out, and it's all covered with mud, it's snotty, one of its tusks is broken, and people look at it and say, that is an ugly-ass pig. And that's true. So they say, well, let's just give the prize to the other pig. We don't even need to look at it. Wait, socialism is worse. I'm a comparativist. People want to compare different ideal conceptions of government. And in that, in, if, if that's what you're talking about, capitalism has problems. If you look in the real world, capitalism, with all of its warts and problems, is better than socialism. Yes, capitalism is worth uh, defending, but we should admit that some of the criticisms of the left are correct. And I think the mistake that we've made is when someone talks about cronyism, I know I have said, oh, well, that's not capitalism. I'm for capitalism. If cronyism is what capitalism becomes, if there's a tendency towards cronyism, we have to work together with the left to sustain capitalism, which is why the country of Sweden is one of the places that I think has been most successful. They were socialist until 92 or 93, and then they said, this is terrible. They sold off all their state-owned enterprises, and they tried to come up with a sustainable capitalist system. So my claim is that we need to think in terms of making capitalism more viable in a democracy, not let's argue about it against socialism. Well, can I ask, what, what, what would be, I mean, do you think that there are features of those Nordic countries where they've, they've had specific policies that made their capitalism more viable than ours? The being relatively small and uh, both culturally and racially homogeneous are big advantages. Um, the United States, though, still has done pretty well 
What has happened to the United States is that in the last 20 years or so, we have imposed a lot of new regulations in the name of controlling markets that the Nordic countries have, they went through that phase and they, they stopped doing it by about 95 or 98. So I would say we're just a decade behind the Nordic countries about coming back towards a more sensible welfare system and less management of prices. But it is also true that being small and racially and culturally homogeneous means that they're going to have fewer antagonisms. And the United States being a large federal country with a lot of uh, diversity across states. I mean, the state of California itself is could easily be three different states by European standards. So the, there, there are some differences. There, there, there are some cultural differences. A number of economists have pointed out, for example, if you look at the average income of Norwegians who are in the United States, that is American Norwegians, their, in, their income per capita is really, really high. So part of that is if the, if your cultural makeup is to say, I have to work for a living, it's embarrassing to accept outside aid. The Northern European countries do that. And Swedish people and Norwegian people who've been in the United States for a couple of generations also do that. Interesting. That is interesting. Well, okay. So I can imagine somebody pushing back and saying like, yes, but let's suppose we got our, we got our viability stickers put on, you know, the, the duct tape is in the right places and maybe we're we got a good system going. Don't we still have an issue with um, profit incentives? Well, don't, won't, won't profits driving markets, won't that make us greedy and, and willing to harm other people? You say, you argue that's not the case. Isn't that right? I, I did. And I just made the argument for why. Every input supplier, that's a voluntary contract. They could have done something else. The reason that they're selling the inputs to me is that is best for them. Not just good, but best. When I sell in output markets, the reason that consumers buy is not because they have to, but that's the best that they can do. If I have something left over from my revenues after I pay my costs, we know for certain that those profits were earned. Now, there is a problem if I use monopoly or government power to obtain markets. So that's the reason we should try to prevent that from happening. But the fact is that profits are good. The the the, the, the they are not just good in the sense of being instrumentally good. The pursuit of profits means that I have to think of the needs for others. And you can see this in a fairly simple example. Imagine that there's been a hurricane in North Carolina and there's a shortage of water. Now, we have a uh, price gouging law that says you can't raise the price. So I go in and there's uh, some water on the shelf. And it is all a dollar a liter, just like it was before the hurricane. So I think, oh, I'm going to buy all the water on the shelf because nobody else must need it. If you allowed prices to rise because other people need that water, it would be $25 a liter. And I would say, oh, gosh, I'd better leave someone for the person behind me. So allowing the price mechanism and profit to allocate resources actually makes people act as if they had moral concern about others. It is repressing profits, saying that it's artificially cheap that makes me not take account of others. So the, the, the people who complain about profits have it exactly backwards. I saw this play out, as I'm sure you did, during the early stages of the pandemic, right? I'd go to the grocery store, all of the toilet paper's gone, you know, all, and 
And all of these stores, uh, they, they refused in some states. I know in Oklahoma, the attorney general at the time, we're watching to make sure nobody's price gouging. And I'm like, all you're doing is making sure that there is shortages of the stuff that people want by, by doing that. There's an old joke about this also in North Carolina about hurricanes. So there's been a hurricane and there's this 7-Eleven that still has water. So I go in and it's $40 a case. And I say, $40 a case, that's outrageous. That's way too expensive. The guy across the street has it for $7 a case. Well, the owner says, fine, why don't you go buy it there? And I say, well, he's out. And the owner says, oh, okay, that's fine then. As soon as I'm out, I'll charge $7. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to talk about a concept, another concept that you, you've, you've discussed, uh, uh, it, which is this notion of permissionless innovation. So why is that important? Why is it desirable? When I talked about fast movements of liquid capital, I was implicitly saying that profit opportunities may be ephemeral, even evanescent. That is, they are brief. If I have to suppose that there's a merger, a new contract, or a new product, and if I start selling it soon, a lot of people will be able to benefit. If I have to go through a two-year process of getting it approved by government authorities, it means that, first, it's going to be much more expensive for me to bring it to market, but many uh, profitable, otherwise profitable opportunities will not even be available. And so if you look at the, the, the industries in the U.S. that have the most permissionful uh, innovation, like the drug companies, what we see is relatively long, delayed uh, innovation. And they're much more expensive. So the interesting thing about a lot of innovations in intellectual property rights is that even if you take time to patent it, by the time you do that, because that can be a pretty lengthy process, the value of this thing is going to be gone because new industries emerge so quickly and they evolve so quickly. So there's a big first mover advantage as long as you can move very quickly. Um, the, the problem with not understanding permissionless innovation, if people that think like lawyers is, well, there's got to be process to approve this. There is a process to approve it. And that is, do consumers, are consumers willing to buy it at a price that is more than it costs me to produce it? We already have an industrial plant, and it's called the profit and loss system. Now, the, the having to get permission is going to slow that down, and we're never going to see those costs, those are all what economists call dead weight loss. We, it's very difficult to measure the cost of transactions that never take place. So I can imagine somebody hearing what you're saying and saying like, okay, but surely we need some sort of like regulations and protections in place so that things don't devolve into the Wild West. You have already, to some extent, argued that, no, some of that can actually lead to more harm than good. Can you talk briefly and maybe give some examples of what you call the Peltzman effect? One of the things that people mention when we talk about safety is that in the absence of regulation, companies have no incentive to provide safety equipment on cars. Now, that's not true. A lot of people would have wanted safety equipment on cars. And if enough of them did, we might have seen it emerge naturally. But in fact, things like seatbelts 
uh, came about as a result, at the time they came about at least, as a result of government regulation. Now, one of the things that was surprising, I think, to many people who were fans of safety regulation, like seatbelts, was that the benefits to safety regulation were not nearly as large as they expected. And the reason for that is what's called the Peltzman effect, and it owes its name to the Chicago economist Sam Peltzman, who pointed out people choose their own level of risk, which means that if you make it safer by having a seatbelt for me to have a wreck, I'm going to drive faster. And it has been, it's obviously been true that there's been a very substantial increase in speed and reckless driving. Now, maybe not all of that is a direct consequence of safer cars, but it is clearly true that having safer cars is going to allow people, if you're going to choose the same level of risk. So I had a certain level of risk before. Now my car is safer. I can drive faster and get back to my own level of risk. And so the illustration that I often give of this is why is it that there's so more, much more head injuries in the NFL than in the um, professional rugby league? In rugby, you don't wear a helmet. Professional football, you wear a helmet. Professional football has three or four times as many concussions as rugby players. And the reason is wearing a helmet makes you feel impervious to danger. And so you take much riskier behavior. This sort of thing is true almost across the board. Now, that's not an argument against safety regulation, but it means that the benefits of safety regulation are going to be less and maybe substantially less than you expect because people are going to choose their own levels of risk. I want to shift now to another concept that you talk a lot. In fact, you have a podcast devoted to that, and that's the notion of uh, transaction costs. Uh, can you explain to our listeners what exactly you mean by transaction costs and how they feature so centrally in a lot of our, our social or economic problems? I always start when I ask students by asking an apparently innocuous question. Um, most of them are familiar with Uber, which is a ride share service where if I have a car in a few minutes and you want a ride, we can find each other. Um, Uber has a thing called surge pricing. Surge pricing means that if a lot more people want rides than there are cars available, the price goes up. So they're all familiar with that. And I ask them, does Starbucks have surge pricing? And they immediately say, well, no, the price of Starbucks stays the same. I say, well, think about it. Suppose you're in the Atlanta airport and it's eight o'clock and you think, boy, I want me some Starbucks. And so you walk over and the line comes out of the Starbucks and goes down the hall and then goes around the corner. And you think, I'm not going to buy Starbucks. Is it because it's too expensive? Yes, because the cost of that $7.50 latte that you have in mind is the sum of the $7.50 plus the 40 minutes you'd have to wait in line. So Starbucks has surge pricing that's based on what economists call queuing. Queuing is a way of rationing. And so what's interesting is that people will look at the length of the line and they'll make a decision about whether or not it's too expensive. Now, Uber is interesting because it 
is a way of selling reductions in transactions cost. Don't ask me how I know this, but I, I have a BMW 330. It's black. And I'm just the sort of asshat you think I am pulling up behind you, flashing my lights. <laughs> but if, if, if I'm driving, this is a pretty nice car and I'm a fine looking fella. I'd like to think I'm driving along and I see a young woman walking by the side of the road and I pull over in my car and I go, Hey, you want to ride baby? The police get called. It becomes a thing. <laughs> Again, don't ask me how I, this is all hypothetical. It could never actually happen. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, it's creepy as heck. So the, the, the fact is, even though she wants a ride and I have a car in a few minutes, we are not able to reach a mutually beneficial transaction. But Uber provides reductions in three aspects of inconvenience. Triangulation, which is we have to find each other. Transfer, which is somehow I deliver the service and you make the payment. And trust, which means that I am assured that you're not going to harm me and that I'm not going to harm you. So those three aspects of transactions cost, triangulation, transfer, and trust, mean that apps, uh, computer programs, software, provide us with ways of reducing transactions cost to enable a whole new dimension of the commodification of excess capacity. Because if I have a car in a few minutes and the right front seat is empty, that is a commodity. But commodifying that excess capacity is expensive. Uber does not sell car rides. Airbnb does not sell hotel rooms. Both of them sell connection. They sell reductions in transfer, triangulation, and trust. And so once you start to think in terms of transaction cost, you realize that many companies that are now trying to reduce their money costs could sell more of their product if they would just reduce transaction costs. And one of the big, the genius of Amazon, Amazon's not always the cheapest, but I can just go on Amazon. I can almost, I can order almost anything. And it'll, in many cases, it'll be delivered tomorrow or even today, which means that the transactions cost are lower. And since the cost of something is the sum of the money cost and the transaction cost. And since demand curves slope downward, if I can reduce transactions cost, I can sell more of my product. It's so interesting you bring up both uh, Amazon and Uber because of other of your work. Amazon, of course, yeah, has done quite a bit to reduce transaction costs compared to before the era of Amazon. But you actually think the future could be a lot more like Uber and less like Amazon. Can you Tell us something about what you're envisioning as a, a sharing economy. It's straightforward, actually, although it's a little bit surprising. But again, once you start to think in these terms, it's obvious. So what Amazon does is make it easier for us to own things. In many cases, I don't actually want to own the thing. So if I want to ride to the airport, I don't want to have to buy a car. I want to rent one for a few minutes. That's actually true for a whole bunch of things. Suppose that my wife wants me, it's Saturday morning and we're going to hang some pictures. And so she says, I think I want the picture on this wall. So I need to put two holes in that wall. Do I want a power drill? No, what I want is two holes in this wall right now. Now it happens that the easiest way under current circumstances for me to put two holes in this wall right now is to own a power drill. But suppose that I could use my phone to contact Uber and have a really high quality commercial power drill delivered to my house in seven or eight minutes. It goes into a smart pod in front of my house. My phone buzzes. I go out, I get the power drill. I drill the two holes in the wall. My wife says, no, not that wall. And I, damn it. Okay. I'll spackle that later. 
So we put the two holes in a different wall, and then I put the drill back in the smart pod. It's picked up, and it goes on seven or eight more jobs that day. So I don't actually need a drill. What I want is two holes in this wall right now. If I can get that by renting it instead of owning it, I'll be happy to do that. I don't have to store it. I don't have to have that money tied up. Plus, it's a that, that's a commercial power drill. It's a much better drill than it's likely that I would buy if I have to buy it and store it. So the the implication of that is that we could be able to share things and have far fewer things as a result if we had an app that specialized in driving things around. Well, that's what Uber does. Uber, if you look at it, they seem to be delivering human beings. But Amazon was a book company, for heaven's sakes. Amazon was a book company, but it turned out that their software was really good at delivering things that people wanted to own. Well, Uber supposedly is a taxi company, but it's not. It's a delivery company. And it would be awesome for Uber to have a whole bunch of products on its app, which you could rent. So I think that the, within just a few years, Uber software is going to look a lot more like Amazon. So right now, people think that Uber's enemy, their competitor, is taxis. It's not. It's Amazon. So I, as I was reading your book, uh, Tomorrow 3.0, uh, and you were talking about the sharing economy, I started comparing it to some of the stuff that I've been reading and hearing about uh, in relation to uh, this notion of degrowth. And it just struck me that what you're describing seems to be kind of like a, an emergent order version of degrowth. In other words, we'd, we're not going to be stockpiling a whole bunch of stuff in, in our homes. Uh, we're going to have it on demand when we want it and need it, and then it'll go back to, uh, to the place from whence it came. Uh, so can you compare and contrast a little bit uh, your version of the sharing economy with, with that notion of degrowth? The notion of degrowth is to use men with guns, coercion, to force people not to engage in transactions they want to engage in on the theory that if we had less stuff, the world would be a better place environmentally. So it's a little bit like Thanos in the Avengers where, you know, every other person dies randomly because the world will be better if every other person dies randomly because we'll have fewer people. I actually think people are assets. And if you look, we don't need to do this. As you rightly said, we don't need to do this by force. It's happening naturally. So the amount of aluminum in an aluminum can has gone down by 60%. There's less than half as much aluminum as there was in an aluminum can in 1960. We are getting more from less. A lot of people have been skeptical about this, but if you look at the empirics, the, the amount of energy that it takes to accomplish things, the amount of plastic, the amount of metal in almost everything around us is going down naturally because of the logic of markets. And so if we just allow the, the process of profit and loss to play out and we recognize the importance of sharing, which sharing makes sense economically, we don't have to force it, it's happening naturally. The fact that we have these big increases in productivity mean that in a lot of ways, we're already accomplishing the objectives of degrowth, but we're doing it without coercion. So again, I ask my students because uh, they have been misled, in my opinion, has the amount of forested land in North Carolina gone up or down since 1900? 
And the answer is it's gone up by a lot. A whole lot of land that was farmland in North Carolina in 1900 is now forest because we're able to get more better crops from a much smaller footprint. So we don't need degrowth. What we need to do is unfetter the mechanisms, the emergent mechanisms of market capitalism and prevent it from becoming cronyist. I'll admit that. There is a problem, but it, the, the problem is not the pursuit of honest profits. Are, are there any goods or services that you foresee might just not ever conform to that model? I mean, are, are, could there be things that just, you know what, we're never going to get away from, we need a brick and mortar for that? Well, I have a toothbrush. And I actually hardly ever use it when you think about it. Now, I am an assiduous brusher of teeth. Nothing creepy. I only brush my own teeth. But still, <laughs> two minutes in the morning and two minutes in the afternoon, which means that for 23 hours and 56 minutes every day, my toothbrush stands there unused. It is unlikely that an app will be able to commodify that excess capacity. We're probably going to keep a lot of things that are personal items like that by themselves. Now, the question of whether I can buy everything online or whether there's going to be bricks and mortar stores, it's going to depend. And I'm, I'm getting boring on this, I realize, but it's going to depend on transaction costs. I am utterly shocked. I did not <laughs> expect that answer. <laughs> because in urban areas, it might be possible to have robots deliver things. And we're going to see it, the, 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 the real estate uh, footprint of little corner shops is really expensive. Whereas if we, if we had just, we could order online and robots could go and get things and deliver them. You see this now in San Francisco, the, you, or in Los, Los Angeles also. These little wheeled robots that go around delivering things. They, they deliver lunch, they deliver uh, products from the drugstore. Uh, probably we'll have drones that deliver these things before long. But that basically has to be urban. And what it means is that there may be a tendency towards re-urbanization, uh, whereas a lot of central cities have been emptied out by suburbanization, this movement may cause a re-urbanization. So I don't pretend to, to know what at, where at the margin this is going to stop, but in urban areas, it will probably continue that bricks and mortar stores of all sorts are going to be harder and harder to maintain against because of the, the expensiveness of real estate, because it is hard for them to be able to stock the variety that an Amazon substation can have with automated delivery. In rural areas, we're still going to have bricks and mortar stores because it's much more expensive to be able to stock a big variety for very low product turnover. All right. So I have a question here uh, as far as your, your optimism about uh, this transitioning into this, this kind of sharing model. Uh, how close do you think we are time-wise to this sharing model, model becoming kind of dominant, uh, especially given some of the pushback that we've seen governments make towards things like, uh, you know, Austin, Texas, trying to ban Uber, uh, uh, t having requirements for Uber or Lyft drivers to be declared employees, such as in California. Are you still optimistic that this is going to take place? And how, give me a time frame that you think. And I know we all, none of us want to get, be, pro you know, projectors of the future, but in your best guess. Well, sharing may not be as important as 
I made out in my first book uh, in the Tomorrow 3.0, in the second book on the sharing economy, um, uh, the, the one that came out with the Institute for Economic Affairs, I backed off a bit about predictions about commodification of excess capacity. I think the big important thing is going to be apps that allow us to cooperate and find each other. So reducing transactions cost in matching markets is probably more important. That is buying and selling things basically online with maybe even with smart contracts. But it is interesting, the two examples that you gave um, there, I've been to Austin recently and they have Uber because it was just so unpopular not to have Uber. And so the uh, taxi companies that resisted it, there was a coalition in Austin between the taxi drivers who wanted to have their sucky monopoly. The taxis were not very good, but they were able to make quite a bit of money because there wasn't much competition. And with some local officials who just thought it was unfair Voters spoke and said, we're going to have Uber. And the state law in uh, California that required that Uber drivers be contractors, it turned out it was so unpopular among many people who wanted to be Uber drivers and not be employees. They wanted to be contractors. Uh, it was wildly unpopular. In fact, the woman who introduced the legislation uh decided that she was going to recommend retracting it. And that legislation was actually taken back. It was repealed or at least amended. So the, there, there is an important question about whether one is a contractor or an employee. Many people on the left say it would be better if people were employees. I think it would be better if I could fly. The fact is that the, the logic of economics is going to make it there will be fewer and fewer people who will be employers, employees. That's just going to happen. The 40-hour-a-week job is going to disappear. We're moving more in the direction of gigs, short-term employment. What people are going to need to do is have something that they can specialize in. Maybe they own an asset that they can rent out and commodify the excess capacity. Maybe they have some skill that they can have gig jobs in. But the 40-hour-a-week job, one way or another, is disappearing. We're actually seeing a rapid decline in the number of full-time jobs. Now, the employment rate is going up. But if you look at the uh, labor force participation rate, it's been falling for quite a long time. There's a lot of people that are just outside the labor force now because we're not going to produce that kind of jobs in the kind of quantities that would be necessary to have the kind of employment we saw in the 1970s. Now, I think that is a social problem, but requiring that if a company hires someone, they have to be a full-time employee with benefits is not going to result in more jobs, but rather fewer. That answer spawns all sorts of questions that uh, I, I want to ask, but we are buttoned up against time. And we have one final question. This might be the most important question that we ask you today. Uh, and I want to warn you, this is a trap question because it's going to make one of us really endeared to you, your answer, while the other one will not be so much, right? So I'm going to let Guy ask this question. Uh, we take the answers to this very personally, so I'm just giving you a heads up. So, Guy, what you... So if you had the free time immediately following this podcast... And you had to choose between two activities. Would you rather go watch an episode of Seinfeld or watch an episode of 30 Rock? 
I have a particular genius for giving answers that make everybody mad. <laughs> so you, you were claiming that one of you would be pleased by my answer. Um, I don't believe I've ever seen either of those. I don't watch television. Wow. What? Oh, okay. man. Okay. <laughs> Did not see that coming. All right. All right. I, I, just, I just don't watch television. I, I may have seen a Seinfeld episode like for five minutes sometime in a hotel room when I was really bored. Man, played the Switzerland card on us. <laughs> I, I would not willingly watch a Seinfeld episode. I know that for sure. Um, I've, I have never watched 30 Rock and I don't know what it is. Uh, there's a there's actually a really good episode of Seinfeld that I don't doubt that there were a lot well, of them. Well, One well, of them no, no, I, this is this is in relation to uh, to something near and dear to your heart, which is uh, it, it hints around. It doesn't attack it directly, but it hints around the the problem of price controls. Uh, and, and in this this case, dealing with a rent controlled apartment that somebody wants, uh, but the uh, the landlord has decided they're gonna, they're going to auction it off on the side, you know, rather than, than fulfill, just let anybody come into it. So, uh, but having said that, yeah, you, uh, you found a way to, to, um, to disappoint us both. I'm really, I'm really, uh, sorry about that. You actually yeah. left us in a tie because our last episode, Anthony Fowler weighed in and he said Seinfeld was right. his thing. We right. forgot to ask our first guest, Samuel Perry, what he thought. I emailed him and he got back to me and you know what he said? He said 30 Rock. He said 30 Rock. So we got one for Seinfeld, so one for 30. We're at a draw right now. So we so appreciate you making the time to visit with us. Uh, this has been very informative. Uh, I hope we haven't uh, scared you off enough that if we extend an invitation later on in the future, you, you'll you come back. And I so hope that you, that you will. I, I We had this interview all prepared and only after we did the prep did I find out you, you've done work on trolley problems, which is also my area that I've written about. Uh, uh, would love to have you back on to talk yeah. about that. I'm I'm in any time you want would be great. Uh, I, I've enjoyed talking to you and I probably should go watch those TV shows. Given my respect <laughs> for each of you, you're probably both right. <laughs> Thank you again. Our guest has been uh, Dr. Michael Munger, uh, head of the uh, politics, philosophy and economics program at Duke University, author of multiple books, including the two that we talked about. Uh, is capitalism sustainable and tomorrow 3.0 thank you so much again and who has his own podcast and that everyone has. should check out yes. uh the answer is transaction, the answer is cost. transaction cost thank you so much thank sir. you so much it was a pleasure thank you thanks for listening to curiosity porn with the two best intellectual pole dancers in the united states dr guy crane and professor james davenport if you'd like to share a comment about today's episode, suggest a guest or topic, or just leave a compliment or complaint, you can reach us at C-U-R-P-R-N at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you. As we wrap up, Possibilities would like to give a special thank you to this episode's sponsor, Palmer Law, paving the way for creative expression in our community. Their commitment to our vision allows us to continue to have these conversations. We are grateful for your continued support, Palmer Law.